if you say, I wish I was born back in a, in a simpler time, then in a way you're kind of making this moment a kind of hell because you're not fulfilling the, the responsibilities of being, uh, of being present. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about the concept of time wealth, deep time, and the poetics of time with Major Jackson. Now, if you know the world of American poetry, you're probably already familiar with Major's work. He's the author of four book-length poetry collections, and he's won all sorts of awards, including a Creative Arts Fellowship at Harvard's Radcliffe Institute, and a gig as the 2007 Jack Kerouac Writer-in-Residence at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. He's now a professor of creative writing and popular culture at the University of Vermont, and he taught with me at the creative writing workshop I run in Paris each summer. You can find out more about those writing classes at pariswritingworkshop.com or via the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. Now, the notion of time wealth and how to best use it has been a fixation of mine going all the way back to my first book, Vagabonding. And one great thing about talking about time wealth with a poet like Major Jackson is that he delves into the concept in a way that goes beyond bullet points. Major is something of a polymath, and our conversation about time doesn't seek certainties so much as unpack concepts and explore philosophies, as we talk about things like linear time versus circular time, mechanical time versus organic time, and since we're in Paris, we talk about cross-cultural understandings of time, something you really can't appreciate until you've had a languorous three-hour meal in a place like France. As such, our conversation isn't really time-optimized, and true to the concept of deviate, it meanders in ways you might find surprising and enlightening. I talked to Major Jackson in the Luxembourg Gardens, not far from the Paris American Academy, where we taught our classes, and you can hear the ambient noise of the city going on all around us as our conversation plays out. Let's listen in. There's something very cultural right now about our relationship to time because of devices. And uh, we all know that um, uh, time is depending on how you were raised, where you grew up, uh, people have a very different relationship. And so mine, I'm thinking about how my relationship to time has evolved as I've grown into uh, both an artist, a father, a, a man, and uh, I would say it's less linear uh, by orientation and culture, and more circular. And so now, or yeah, or, okay. Well, well, now it's more linear. Okay. But okay. by by, and I I switch back and forth depending on what time of the year is. I mean, if I'm doing uh, if. If I'm in the throes of an academic year, there's deadline after deadline after deadline, often associated with uh, work. But if it's summer, I'm a little bit more circular. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I get the feeling this is going to come back a lot, you know, because there's, it's not just the way people like you or I navigate the world, but there's like historical precedents for this. Oh, of course, um, yeah. And the idea of mechanical time. Mm. Uh, and even like the Romans saw time in a way that was sort of organized, but in a way that was different because like the, like the, the, the railroads and, and time zones and stuff didn't come around until the 19th century. 
Um, but then there's also like the commoditization of time. And it's funny because I met you at a cafe. You were having a Coke. Uh, you couldn't find some money. And, and so, I, so I didn't say it because of the nature of our, <laughs> but I almost said, well, you know, since you're giving me your time, here's, here, here's some, some euros for the Coke. And it's, I think once you become conscious of the way, ways we talk about time, it touches everything, you mm. know, from, from something as simple as, as uh, well, you're giving me your time, you know, Major's giving me some time in the afternoon, so it's nothing for me to buy him a Coke, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's a throwaway sentiment, but it's tied into this idea that we have come to refer to time almost in the way we refer to money, you know, as a commodity. You're right. And I know you've done a lot of thinking around this particular topic, so feel free to uh, hold forth right now. But I've always shuddered at that, at that phrase, time is money, because it, it has me suddenly account for every moment in which I am not actively <laughs> Uh, pursuing some um, some activity that might lead to. So for example, uh, I like to walk in the park here and I know I probably should be at home writing this proposal that will eventually lead to um, uh, some sort of venture uh, in, in, the, in the future. Uh, but frankly, the activities that um, that make my life worth living have nothing to do with money and I'd rather spend my time doing that. And I think that's what's going to be fun about our conversation because mm. I've thought about time in the context of travel oftentimes or in that sort of old stoic existential sense about not wanting to squander your time. But you mentioned the phrase the poetic of time, poetics mm. of time and you are a poet mm. uh, and a professor and so I'm just really interesting to, to hear to hear your take on this, you mm -hmm. know, um, because it's obviously something that you've thought about a lot. Uh, and are you going to work on a book about it as well? An essay. Okay. More of an essay, which the essay for me has to do with several things that I believe um, happen, particularly for artists and for writers, which is, and actually one could argue anyone who is engaged in any activity in which the perception of time somehow uh, fizzles away or our consciousness about time. Um, for me, for, for part of the, the joy of writing is I can kind of step outside of time in the sense that I'm deeply engaged in the conversation with myself around language, around um, uh, whatever topic that I'm addressing at the moment, uh, the mechanics of the poem itself during the, the composition is such a focus kind of moment in which I feel every cell, um, every thought uh, is just drilled towards this one particular poem. I'm not thinking about dinner. I'm not thinking that I sometimes <laughs> I have to pick up my son. I, you know, and I wind up, you know, stepping away from my desk, remembering, oh, my son is waiting on the corner for me outside his middle school. All because for the for five hours, I was just engaged in this activity of uh, writing a poem, which, in in terms of, and this is why poets um, enjoy the act, the activity. 
it's it's not it's so divorced from the economy I mean eventually it'll be in a book and magazine but for the most part we do not contemplate how much money we're going to earn per poem or per line and that is a certain kind of freedom that feels transcendent and so the essay wants to talk about what one might call during the composition moment a kind of death <laughs> death yeah okay because the act of creating is a way of stopping time in a way or any focused activity um, I, i'm being i'm using death lit, uh, figuratively of course mm -hmm. but any if there's any aspect of of human existence that marks us as human it is time we're born and eventually the two the apparently the two most significant spotlight moments in our lives is our is our birth and in our in our death what we do in between is an attempt to subs, uh, relegate those moments birth and death and make how do I want to phrase this? Make our lives more lasting than and more important than those two moments of our, our coming into being and our exiting. And so for me, writing becomes this activity of not becoming famous or transcendent or um, you know, have my name in some anthology for like a Shakespeare for eternity uh, or Chaucer, <laughs> but to contribute in such a way um, that somebody else who reads the poem also feels that absence of time. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think it ties into, like, I don't think there's a single solution to our listeners about how to think of time. Mm. Um, I mean, in a way, it connects to deep time. Have you read Sven Burkert's Gutenberg Elegies? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so he talks about time as uh, deep time, is, it, is it time experienced without the experience of it passing? Right? Mm -hmm. And so for the poet, such as yourself, that... Uh, is experienced while writing the poem, perhaps with the with the hope that reading the poem, the reader will also, will also experience that deep time. That's right. Yeah, and so what you were saying very much goes against the idea that of time is money, right? Mm -hmm. um, I talk in my book Vagabonding about time wealth, but there's a danger in time wealth, and suddenly, well, you want to optimize your time wealth, and I'm sure I've used that phrase before, mm. but there's a difference between allocating your days so you can do more, and then losing yourself. <laughs> in, in time and there's there's other ways to lose yourself you know there's poetry there's sex there's travel mm -hmm. there's drugs sometimes mm -hmm. um, and I think there's so many metaphors for how maybe deep time is harder to experience now because and maybe it's a child versus adult thing but I remember reading books or listening to stories without knowing where they were going to end or what percentage of the book I was in and when I have a paper book now, every once in a while I'll check the page number. If I'm reading a Kindle, I'll look at the percentage of the book. When I used to watch movies in the dark, not knowing when they would end, but now I can look at my Netflix and it's like, okay, 
there's 46 minutes in this movie. Um, I'll pause now because I only have 30. Um, and it feels like there's so many metaphors for how our awareness of, of moments passing, of time ticking, uh, work against the idea of, of deep time and, and losing ourselves mm. in this sense. Is poetry mm. the, the best way that you find that you can fall away from mechanical time into deep time, or are there other ways in which you pursue and experience this? I live in Vermont, so much of my summer activities, and sometimes if the if weather permitting, I find myself taking uh, long walks in the in the forest, and that lends itself to a lot of meditation. And I I strongly feel that unlike drugs or 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 maybe even sex is a way of stopping time too, but uh, I need to be conscious and, and present and awake during those moments because meditation and thinking and contemplating are such a huge part of how I frankly survive. I mean, if, I, if I'm on the, um, you know, I, I'm making, I suddenly my brain just leapt to deep time to deep forest and then that led to this to the, the series of the music right there. <laughs> yeah. to, to the hit song from 1990 exactly. which my producer can cut to right now but truly um and this may be the the kind of the naturalist in me i do make a connection between uh the modern world nature and time uh and maybe because I read quite a bit of the romantics, particularly Wordsworth, the world is too much with us late and soon. We lay waste our powers. Uh, you say getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And so anytime I can uh, engage in some activity that is not about getting and spending, um, but acknowledging uh, more or, or less what I consider, getting and spending for me is a, a bit of triviality, uh, but something that has activity that has a certain depth and allows me to appreciate existence, I'm, I'm there. That's the kind of activity that I want to um, bring more into my life. Death or depth? Depth. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but there... <laughs> You know, there is, again, I, I truly believe in certain kinds of escapes, even movies, right? We, the, the, the uh, cinema studies talks quite um, uh, eloquently about uh, early movie experience as a kind of escape, a kind of uh, depth or deep time. Um, I, part of, part of, I believe what we're talking about too is getting away from the segmented, fragmented lives that we lead. Maybe as a result of the age that we're living in, the, the, the age of technology, the age of information. Um, but these long extended moments where we can be engaged with each other as um, not as some sort of transaction, but, um, and for me, transactions are looking at my Instagram, 
feed, looking at my Facebook feed, looking at others. There's, there's these little quick fragmented glimpses into each other's lives. I'd rather sit down and have a, a five course meal over three hours with friends and family um, as a way of escaping the world rather than these being in the world in these kind of little insignificant ways. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if you become a consumer of other people's lives through Instagram and, mm. and other social media. It is transactional. Yeah. You look at mine, I look at yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like being at summer camp at age six. <laughs> it, it totally is, and it's also very fragmented. It's like, mm. well, let's dip a toe into the, into the waters of my mm -hmm. pal from high school. Right. And, and it's right underneath you know, my, my travel friend from a couple months ago. Um, and let me say, I, I'm not lambasting altogether. I think some of the joy in that is in the absence of these social platforms, and I'm saying in quotes, uh, it's possible that uh, we would not be without friends from, or have any connection without friends from high school, which, you know, one could argue might, might be a good thing, you know, who knows. But one of, one of I'll say this, this was a, a fascinating um, event for me while being here in Paris, which was I, Didi and I, my wife and I were en route to a concert in uh, a church. And we're holding hands. The, the streets are narrow here, of course. And we have to go around a couple who's sitting outside uh, of a cafe having a glass of wine. And I squeeze Didi's hand and stop her and, and say, Didi, one moment. And I turn and back up and speak to the woman of this couple. And, uh, uh, excusez-moi, vous êtes Juliette? Uh, and she, her eyes widen, she stands up and she hugs me and says, Major. And this was a friend or really a classmate back then, but we had several classes together uh, in high school, at Central High School. We hadn't seen each other in 34 years. Wow, and you saw her in Paris. And I saw her on the street in Paris. Turns out she and her husband, both of them uh, professors at UCLA, uh, were en route to this very same performance, and we wind up sitting next to each other and subsequently having um, uh, wine and charcuterie uh, afterwards and it was amazing to catch up even during that two hours that we spent together in the in the evening uh, had it been Facebook or had we been connected on Facebook we wouldn't have that richness of encounter I'm not saying we all need to shelve each other for 32 years and then <laughs> schedule some sort of uh, a dinner down the future or uh, a concert down the future, but I treasured that, that particular moment in ways that I feel my little glimpses in social media into people's lives just doesn't give me that, that, same, that same pleasure. I mean, this is time-based, too, because we're navigating relationships with people for whom the most vivid memories might be 
from a completely different time. Mm. That you're seeing that someone in your mind, they're 17 years old. Mm. As an aside, actually, I had a reunion of my old grunge band recently. Mm. And for 25 years in my mind, they've all been 20 years old. And then I go to meet these guys. One guy I see all the time, the other three I, I'd never see at all. And it's just like, who are these old people playing our music, you know? Sorry, guys. But um, uh, I think you, there's different ways to navigate that passage of time and relationship. But I want to ask you this, because it's something that I'm mulling over in my head, and I'm sure it'll lead to either essay or poem, but do you remember the first moment where you realized you were going to die and the existential crisis that ensued afterwards? Let me think about and it. Because that's about time, too. That's when you realize that there's a definite end to this. And it may be the death of a beloved, but I wonder if it was... Well, I'm going to hedge. I'm yeah. going to give you a hedge You're going to pivot answer. on me. Okay. And it was when I was traveling America, my first vagabonding trip. And travel is a way of slowing down time. Mm. It's a sense of reclaiming time in a certain sense, uh, of through novelty experiencing things in a different way. And I was in a monastery place, you know, monasticism is tied into understandings of time that are very different. It's almost, the monastic life is almost a daily um, strive to experience the spiritual level of deep time. And I was in, I wasn't Catholic, right? I wanted to stay at the monastery, but I wasn't Catholic. And it was in Massachusetts, actually. Mm. So it was in New England, Spencer, Massachusetts. Spencer, Mass. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I wasn't Catholic, so I wasn't invited into the guest house, but they, said, they, they saw that I was very earnest, and so they let me stay in the vocation house, which is for people who are contemplating becoming monks. And there was one guy who was obviously escaping in a divorce, and there was no way the dude was ever going to become a monk. And there was another guy who probably didn't become a monk either, but he wasn't that much older than me. He'd just gotten out of the Navy. Hmm. And he had a skull tattoo on his arm. And I said, oh, that's sort of badass, and he's here, it's memento mori. And I'm like, what's memento mori? And he's like, it's remember death, remember that you will die. Um, which is sort of a medieval Christian concept, but you actually see old Greek epitaphs and, mm -hmm. and, and, and um, uh, oh, what's the, the sun clock type thing? Sundial. The sundial, Sundial yeah. epigram. Um, uh, memento mori, remember that you will die. And so that's, that's, that's it, is that maybe as a kid, I went to a funeral and realized that life is short. I grew up in the church, so... There's, the, there's a certain existential understanding mm -hmm. you get if you're religious, but that's when the penny drops. Not just that I'm going to die. I sort of knew I was going to die, but really the meaning behind a mental mori is that remember to live mm. because mm -hmm. you will die. Right? Mm -hmm. And so it, was, it wasn't a sort of an at the edge of grandpa's casket moment. It was more of a, um, well, this is another thing that I wanted that's to talk funny. to you about. It's more of a seize the day thing. <coughs> right, you know, because right. That, that is a Robin Williams movie That's right. <laughs> that draws on poetry, you know, that, that draws on to the, the virgins to make much of time. Robert Herrick, to the virgins. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, you know, I'm sitting with Major Jackson, uh, American poet, and it's funny how we end up getting poetry Trojan horsed into our lives. And so I think, and I, I sobbed at Poet Society before I had this moment in the monastery. And I think there's a line between them. Mm -hmm. and, and other poetry that was speaking to me at the time, it, it, like Walt Whitman, which if you read Vagabonding, obviously had a big influence mm -hmm. on me. And he also, he, you know, Walt Whitman speaks across generations to mm -hmm. people who might be experiencing the same thing as him. So, yeah, you can draw a line to, and I think we look down our nose at movies sometimes, but in a way it, that turned on a, a light bulb in my head. I got Robert Herrick through 
Robin Williams telling whichever actor I forget now, you know, right. to the version, you know, um, um, uh, Carpe Diem. Another, Carpe Diem, yeah. yeah. And then that was brought home by Memento Mori. It was, it's these two epigrams, one that came to me in a movie theater and one that came to me in a, in a monastery that made me remember the philosophical idea of death. That was a gift. Yeah. That was a gift, yeah. seeing that guy's skull. And it, it has me wonder what, you know, I, I believe rituals are a way to remind us of that. Um, and not just funerals mm-hmm. and the ritual around it. But um, my hope is that there are other, there are other rituals are either around family or, you know, where people talk about the dead, like the Day of the Dead, for example, I think is a, tip, uh, is a, 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 a specific cultural rit- ritual that I'm, that I'm thinking of. But I wonder in the age of technology, how can we, well, Art is a ritual, now that I think about art making and experiencing art is also a way of, of reminding ourselves that here's, here, here is something that will outlive you, right? The Mona Lisa is here. But guess what? You're going to go. She's going to be here right. with that little weird quirky smile, but you're going. Um, you're, you're encountering... Uh, or drawing a connection between carpe diem. That's what I was saying, talking about, carpe diem. So carpe diem is, is, if we are going to talk about poetry and time, clearly that's one of the, one of the sage wisdoms that uh, uh, professors and teachers, English teachers can give their, their students, particularly as they are kind of launching out into, uh, into the world. For me, in addition to Whitman, in addition to Herrick, um, I've already mentioned it, but Wordsworth's uh, intimations of immortality. He has this wonderful line in there where he says, the boy is father to the man. And all those experiences as a child are so contained in us but we forget them. And this is a classic kind of message or a classic kind of uh, wisdom about, about poems is that, um, I, I, I even wrote it down, it, Whitman, I mean, Wordsworth says, you know, as soon as we born, he says, well, you know, our, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. That's the first thing he says. Uh, but then he says this, which I found fascinating. Um, Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, which is as we are coming into manhood, as we are assuming the roles that we are to assume as responsible uh, men in our community, it becomes a kind of prison that closes around our boyhood such that we forget the things that animated our existence in our youth and fed our curiosity and our wonder. And part of, again, part of writing, part of 
writing poetry, reading, has allowed me to maintain that sense of, of wonder, which goes back to something we were talking about with lifelong learners, is that uh, that is a way of pushing back against, against time. Yeah, before the interview, we were talking a little bit. We have some students here in Paris who are as, as old as in their 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we were just sort of talking about how that animates people in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. And I shared with Major how this is my 14th summer in French, but my French is atrocious, yet I spent two years in Korea. And I can, a couple shots of soju, and pretty soon I'm throwing out um, Korean language all over the place. But I think it's because there was a certain open-heartedness that mm -hmm. I that I... I was less cerebral, and in a way, I may have been a little bit anguished and depressed. But I came in with an, an open, a more open heart, perhaps, and less of an agenda when I went to Korea mm -hmm. uh, than when I come to France. It, it's interesting the, the prison metaphor versus youth. Kids never check the clock, right? Mm. It's adults check the clock for them. Mm -hmm. Kids go out and run, and then mm -hmm. mom gets mad and has to call them inside, mm -hmm. or at least they did before they had the iPads, right? right? <laughs> um, get off my lawn. Um, <laughs> But really, it's one of those things where we don't have to be talked into experiencing deep time because we're experiencing the only time we do. Oh, we're for running sure. off towards the horizon. And I actually heard um, that's what free range parenting was about. That's it. Just go out. Yeah. You know, just do whatever. Come back in dinner time. Come back with most and of if, your fingers. That's at, right. <laughs> in time for dinner. That's right. It was a it was a way of of uh, allowing us to experience that pleasure of ripping and running and exploring on our own, unmediated by uh, play dates, unmediated, get off my lawn, right. unmediated <laughs> by uh, a, a regimented uh, um, a weekly schedule of violin lessons, of swim lessons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and I think that and that, we turned out okay. And here we are. Here we, we have we have uh, like what uh, forty toes between <laughs> between the two forty fingers uh, and toes between the two of us. Um, yeah, no. I mean, we were talking about achievement versus appreciation. As kids, all we know is appreciation. Mm. You know that maybe there's there's the swim practice which leads to the swim trophy. And I was into the swim trophies when I was six. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll admit that. Mm -hmm. But I think we have we sort of have to trick ourselves as adults into becoming into experiencing time as we did as kids, that appreciation, it takes a long walk or a long trip sometimes to return ourselves. And I've written about this in the context of travel, that mm -hmm. suddenly we're in Myanmar and we can't read the signs, just like we couldn't read the signs when we were Oh, before. for sure, yeah. And we have to ask in very simple language for food, <laughs> right, in another country. You were talking about the prison of adulthood. And of course, it's tied into, there comes a point in young people's lives where they have to focus on achievement or else they're not gonna become the, you know, that's part of the human experience, you know, I don't want to knock achievement. But I've also heard of penitentiaries, actual prisons, referred to as deserts of time. Mm. It's where time is, people are being punished by having time taken away from mm -hmm. them and, and being regimented and prescripted. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting how uh, you sort of brought that up as a poetic metaphor, is that we imprison our time as we transform. But then one of our social the ways we punish people socially is through prisons. You know, you're from Philly. You've probably been to Eastern St. Penitentiary. Oh, yes, I have. Right, it's right near me, yeah. where I grew up, near okay. Fairmont Park. Yeah. It sort of invented the, it's a good Quaker prison, right? right. It, it sort of in, invented <laughs> the modern prison years That's and years right. ago. And part of, of course, and I think it's the prison that Foucault wrote about when he talked about the Panopticon. Pan yeah. 
Yeah. And and pe- that's where the word penitentiary comes from because the Quakers mm-hmm. thought that penitence, uh, that solitude wouldn't lead to insanity, <laughs> but to uh, to penitence. You know, mm-hmm. the, sort of this old Christian idea. Uh, but but in a sense, this very idealistic structure in in North Philly became. Uh, sort of the, the first of many institutions that make a prison of time and not mm. that there wasn't institutionalized time prisons before uh, penitentiaries but mm-hmm. it's interesting how socially one way we punish people is by taking time away f- from their lives mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. and, and, and that's a very mechanical time time way of looking at it it's like okay so you murdered someone we get 20 years the, the state gets 20 <laughs> years of your life right or in some situations, you got caught selling marijuana for the third time. Will take twenty years of your life. I mean, there's a lot of ways to. Fortunately, that law hopefully is off the book. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think yeah. there will come a time where we had enough judges who got stoned as college students <laughs> that it will no longer seem that no longer seem that boogied exotic. out. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. By the time the disco age turns through, <laughs> turns through the the judicial system. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we, that we, of course, death makes time seem real. Uh, and I've, I'm actually going to read you a quote, and I'll be interested to know. I, I was going through my notes about time, and I saw this quote, and it seems so poetic. It says, death created time to grow the things that it would kill. Mm, death traded time. Yeah, death. Basically, the, the death preface, traded time to grow the things that it would kill. That it would kill yeah. Basically, it said in, in eternity where there is no time, nothing can grow. So death mm-hmm. created time to grow the things that it would kill. Mm. It's actually from True Detective. Oh, I, I looked at the I source. Like, I was like, wow, who could that be? Was that? <laughs> well, that, that, that's like the trick question because I was looking at my notes and it's like, wow, who said that? And it's like, oh, that's True, true Detective. <laughs> that's an HBO show. Anyway, I'm gonna. On a more serious level, I'm going to quote you one of your own poems, oh. um, which is uh, How to Disappear, mm-hmm. which has the, the refrain, I have not disappeared. And the end of that poem says, I am a life in sacred language, termites toil over a grave, and my mind is a ravine of yesterdays. At a glance from across the room, I wear September on my face, which is eternal and does not disappear, even if you close your eyes once and for all, simultaneously, like two coffins. Mm. Uh, interestingly, the language, do you know the Stanley Moss poem, Stations? Is it about the Stations of the Cross? Well, I'm not no. sure, because I okay. wrote down a section of it okay. from Poetry Magazine about 20 years ago, uh-huh. and it goes like this. Before a Trocento painting of a kneeling archangel announcing to Mary a child will be born to her, I notice that she wears delicate looped earrings from which hang two little gold crosses. Oh. Signs of a crucifixion that has not yet occurred. Time is nothing, an echo. Night and day are only a foreshadowing. I have not yet disappeared. Really? Yeah. So when I read your book, which I have not disappeared, it reminded me of this old Stanley Moss line. Huh. I have not dis- yet disappeared. Huh. Um, deals with mortality yeah. in a different category. Yeah. Well, funny enough, that... I've never used dreams as a source of my poetry, but for some reason, I was in that kind of, that realm sleep that where you're lucid, and that I woke up with that phrase in my head, I have not disappeared. And I didn't know where it was taking me. And frankly, I have this belief of the presence of, of 
just because of my family and culture, the presence of spirits in our lives, that our ancestors. And whereas I thought I was writing a poem about the permanence of art and art as a container of a consciousness, a living, breathing person uh, painted Guernica. A living, breathing person um, wrote uh, in the Mecca. And, I, and I, I relish, as I mentioned earlier, in the fact that one way of beating time is to make something um, or to create a deed that, it, that will last throughout and, and impact um, uh, future generations to come. So I thought I was writing about that, but then I understood eventually that that was me to some extent feeling what I thought were the presences of people who were literally responsible. Someone decided not to jump off of slave ship. Someone decided to take the lash rather than run away. Someone decided to go to college and uh, provide uh, for their family. Uh, so my suddenly I realized that line was I have not disappeared, was me speaking, but also me speaking for the legions of others behind us uh, who um, account for our existence. And I think that's something all artists, visual, cinematic, writers, prose writers, poets, essayists, we need to look back at the past and acknowledge the presence. Uh, I mean, is there divinity? Do I believe? Yes. I also believe divinity is right here in, in nature and in the unseen. And so uh, if that alienates your listenership, but I'm just going to state it. I, I come from a very spiritual background, spiritual family. And, um, and that particular poem on disappearing, particularly within the context of history, is a, a pretty phenomenal because it also, not that I wrote it, but the idea that the past is always present and the present is always signaling and has a connection to the future. I think one thing, you know, you talk about ancestors, which is interesting, my dad's a big genealogy guy and mm -hmm. mathematically, if you do the math, we have like a billion ancestors <laughs> as of a, a thousand years ago and there weren't a billion people in the year a thousand. I mean, there's just all sorts of crazy <laughs> things that come into your head right, if you think about right. that. And then just all of the, I mean, even honoring your ancestors, be it the, you know, the, the person who decided to, not to jump off of the slave ship mm -hmm. or, um, you know, my grandfather who was hungry one day and it was in a time when he saw a skunk and he killed the skunk and sold its pelt and mm. for 50 cents and then he could eat that day. And mm. So like when I was 20, I would remember that, that my grandfather had whatever <laughs> I was suffering through in the grunge era, it was not as bad as my grandfather. Um, do you... Um I was thinking about this as well in, in relationship to our, um, our conversation, just going back to earlier, which is um, the escape from time. And I, I love how you talked about prisons weaponizing time, using time as a, as a weapon. But 
I, I'm also thinking about um, more ways of escaping time as a certain kind of freedom. Do I like teaching? Yes. When I was younger, did I like going to a, a corporate office and working nine to five? I enjoyed it because I enjoyed my colleagues and my friends, but if I could have done something else, I would have. Um, what kind of an office did you go to? I worked um, several. I worked in... Were you an accounting major? I was, I was an accountant, oh, okay. yes. Okay. I was an accountant, yes. I read that in your bio and it, and it like slipped over me because you have all these <laughs> you know, other honors as a poet and then it just popped back into my head. So this is interesting. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, we talk about weekends as a way of escaping and boy, do we celebrate during those particular moments. But I'm wondering about um, time as prison and the ways that we claim our freedom. How do, how do you right now, other than I know you, you claim it through your, your travels, but what we're asking, because even that art as transcendence or leaving our deeds as a way of marking that we were here, we are able to stand outside of time. The creative act as well. But I'm wondering how else do you kind of, you said it earlier, experience deep time, but how else are you free? How are you, how do you express your freedom or claim your freedom in relationship to time? I think it's something I keep falling into and out of, hmm. you know? I, I don't think that there's just a laminated card in my wallet that reminds me how to do it. <laughs> and I talk a lot about time wealth in, in my travel mm -hmm. writing because I think people... With a great phrase, by the way. Yeah. Time no. wealth, time is currency. Yeah. But not mon towards monetary ends, but... Yeah, not, not as a commodity, but, but yeah, also in a commodity. Just It's a metaphor that helps us think about time in a useful way. Mm -hmm. Because before I wrote Vagabonding, there were a lot of books about how to roll your socks and where to buy plane tickets and stuff. But it felt to me that there wasn't enough Walt Whitman in, in travel advice, right? <laughs> um, that that um, you need to realize that... And it, it's a phrase that John Muir used as well. You're a naturalist, mm -hmm. so you've probably mm -hmm. read some Muir. Um, that to be time rich, you, it's something you give to yourself, you know, mm. that it's the, 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 the Croesuses of the world, the Croesuses and Trumps of the world um, probably have less time than, than uh, well, you know, Kerouac talked about that too, that, that the men at the, at the margins, men and women at the margins of society have something that the powerful men don't, and that's time to spend in, in ways that oftentimes powerful people don't, mm -hmm. right? So, like, travel as a way of actualizing my time wealth is something I can always go back to. Mm -hmm. And I surprise myself sometimes. Like mm -hmm. I was in Hawaii this winter. I always go to a warm place in the winter. And I did a lot of walking. Mm -hmm. And being on a, on a humid Hawaiian trail all day is something I forgot. In a way, it was, it was one, it was a way of slowing down time. In fact, there's a, there's a poem called Jerusalem. And I by uh, James Fenton. Is it by Maybe a di different Jerusalem, but. I think it's cold. Unrecall? Not unrecall. Anyway, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's that um, walking is a way of getting someplace, but also delaying its arrival. Mm. Um, mm. I went through a period where I, actually there's a stack of poetry magazines from the 90s when I lived in this house in Korea, and I read my way through all of them. That's where I found that Stanley Moss poem. Uh, so yeah, so walking is a way, and, and you've alluded to this already, of experiencing time in a different way. But then also... I remember how much 
I spent a couple summers as a sort of a backpacking guide in Colorado when I was 18 and 19. And so it took me back to that raw self that existed before there were smartphones and apps and social networking. And when I walked through the forest, that's all I did, mm. you know. Have you read The Snow Leopard uh, by Peter Matheson? No, I haven't. Uh, it's when he goes in, he, he, he goes with George Schaller, who's a scientist, and, and they're looking for mountain blue, blue goats, I think it is. Uh, and they see signs of the snow leopard, but they never see him. It's sort mm -hmm. of a spiritual travel book. Mm -hmm. And there's this line about how he loves the simple moments where when he reaches down to the smudgy juniper pot fire and picks up his blue mug, that's all he does, <laughs> right? And so I think there's moments in this age where we're rarely, what we're doing is rarely all we're doing, mm -hmm. you know? We have, we have to use a, a metaphor, we have multiple windows open at the same time, mm -hmm. right? So, also by hiking, I was able to slow down time, uh, commune with my 19-year-old self, and for that to be all I was doing, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so, I, and that surprised me. Like, I was like, even though I've talked about time wealth a million times, I rediscovered it through travel again. Yet, you know, I feel like I've been sucked into the maw of mechanical time so many times here in this month in Paris, mm, like where I've squandered mm -hmm, time. Going mm -hmm. back to the, the old stoic idea, the, the idea that men squander time mm -hmm. in ways that they would never squander their wealth. Mm -hmm. that, if, that if somebody came and, and took five acres of your property, you'd go out with a, with a spear and chase them <laughs> off. Where, and Seneca was writing about this years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but people steal your time all the time and you just shrug your shoulders. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like I've not optimized my time this month very well. Interestingly, last, last night, it was a really hot day in Paris, and it was maybe 8 o'clock, and all I wanted to do was drink a cold bottle of rosé wine. Mm. So I got a bottle of rosé wine and some bread and some hummus, and I drank the whole thing. <laughs> I, I had some essays to read for class today, and that's what I needed to do. So I set my alarm for 4 in the morning. So many time metaphors in this story. And I downloaded the movie Dazed and Confused <laughs> on my phone. And so I sat there in sort of this, this rosé wine high and watched this movie set in 1976 that I first saw in 1993 in a way that reminded me of my own high school years in 1988. And now it's 2018. And... I was communing with time in that moment. Yeah. And this is going to sound goofy because it's not like hiking in Hawaii. But somehow, in sort of this alcohol-infused moment, <laughs> when I was feeling a little bit angsty about managing my time right, I communed with multiple versions of myself watching this movie. It's a Richard Linklater movie. And That's it's, right. It's so good. There's so many true moments about being young. And, and, and there's, there's discussion of time in that movie, too. And it's mm -hmm. a movie that takes place in real time. It's just one night. Um, and somehow, I was in deep time. And you've talked about art, about writing poems that take you into deep time, and you hope the reader goes into deep time as well. Richard Linklater, you took me back into deep time. I've probably seen that movie 12 times. But last night, I watched that again, and it's what I needed. Mm -hmm. I woke up at 4. I went for a run at first light. I ran by Luxembourg Gardens, but it was closed. I went back and read my student essays. Um, I prepared for this interview, <laughs> and uh, it was it was a weird way. Like I said, I don't have a laminated car, but sometimes I stumble into it and then stumble back out to it. And between now and the time I fly home, 
I'm sure I'll have an angsty moment where I feel like I've, I've just sort of squandered an afternoon. Well, this is, you know, we're speaking about writing as well, and um, one of the skill sets of every writer is an ability to create a narrative in which there is a pocket of time that fills as if time stopped. So you were in that particular narrative. And the moments in which, some people do it by way of flashbacks. Uh, Shakespeare did it by long monologues. He just, someone come out on stage, stop the action, let's let this person start. Oh yeah, all right, everyone back on stage, let's, let's, uh, let's get back to the action of, 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 of the play. But when poems do it, and this is why lyric poetry is really fascinating, uh, to me, because there is no particular narrative. It's the, it's the, it's the poem of the moment of the now that it that is, you know, time exists on either end of the poem, but not with a with a lyric poem. And so the 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 fiction, the movies that can give me that sense of dreaminess. Boy, do I I I eat that I eat that stuff up. So. Um, you, you mentioned um, uh, Linklater, uh, but, and, I, and there's other Richard Linklater films that, that I'm a huge um, fan of, but um, someone like uh, Bergman, for example. Bergman is someone who I go to um, to have that experience that, of, of a film that's lyric. Now, the, those kinds of films you're not going to find at the kind of stadium seating multiplex uh, cinemas. But boy, do I like coming back to them for that very experience of being, experiencing time in a different way. It's like when, we, when someone calls cinema that, or cinema verite, here, here we are, the land of new wave films, 1960s, 1970s, that contributed to a, gate, a great deal of it, um, uh, they say it's poetry. And what they mean by that is, be, is that there's this lyric quality of it in which you can exist in the film, uh, either a film that has a narrative, but there's these huge pockets of kind of deep reflective engagement in uh, deep thoughts, the self, the big ideas, the grand, the, the, the conversations that we've been having in art for years. What is the meaning of life? How do I grieve? Uh, what's the nature of time? Um, is there, how do I exist as a, as a human being? Um, so now I'm going to go back to days and <laughs> Is there a, a poem, movie, or novel that you can go back to again and again without losing that sense of of deep time, that you can hit that reverie, that you can hit that... Um... Yeah, there's a, a, a James, well, there's a number of poems, gosh, but James Wright's poem, which is relevant to this conversation, Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm, in which the title, it says a lot, because most of what happens is a very short poem. I can read it if you want. Sure. Well, I, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just say it ends with, um, I have wasted my life. This guy, you've, you've heard this poem, I'm sure, it's highly anthologized. Lying in a hammock at William Duffy's farm, 
in Pine Island, Minnesota. Over my head, I see the bronze butterfly asleep on the black trunk, blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines, the droppings of last year's horses blaze up like golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. I have wasted my life. I've been puzzling over that poem since I first read it because the title, Lying in in a Hammock, uh, that's a great moment to experience the world, right? To kind of lounge and lean back. The rest of that is at William Duffy's farm. Some other guy, not only just the guy, a guy named Bill Duffy, and it's his farm. Where in Pine Island, Minnesota? That's the title. The ending is, I have wasted my life. So in this moment, this, the speaker in this poem looks around and sees these images of either waste or of productivity and suddenly becomes reflective that going back to our conversation about uh, being productive members of society, he has this moment where he's not gonna continue to lounge in that hammock, probably. He's probably gonna get, get his act together and, and get to work or, you know, not sit in the car like a yogini or waiting for a yoga class or well, there's a, you know, there's going a, back to that thread in our conversation. Right. But I'm just wondering if maybe maybe it's the uh, the Wall Street financier who's experiencing that stillness for the first time mm. and realizes he's lost. Oh, that's a good point too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And didn't it, this might be apocryphal? A different reading of it. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That that's maybe. Um, I've wasted my life because I've been blind to blind right these small these moments small, yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, it's funny we are in a conversation about time so for the first time before we had this conversation you asked how long will it last and i said well my episodes tend to be uh 60 minutes but oftentimes we talk for 90 and we cut back mm-hmm. and i just looked down and we've gone over 90. okay so, yeah 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 i didn't even feel it that so, was the experience of well, deep well, time right uh, high five right <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, in the interest of time and to respect yeah. your time, these are total. Yeah. These are total podcast lines too. You know mm-hmm. that. Well, in the interest of time, I say that in class too. <laughs> or to, re- I want to respect your time, so I'm going to wind down. Right. So it's it's our vocabulary. Um, we often use the word time as a, as a kind of currency, even though we forget that it it does have worth and it is a, mm-hmm. it is a commodity that's very important. So. Well. It makes us so, the language makes us aware of potentially being wasteful or not respectful of, of someone else's well, and that's, that's, schedule. You know, uh, I can't tell you how many times people have been frustrated with me yeah. because I have a circular sense of time right. at times in which I'm like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll see you there at 3.30. But and is, I'm that, there is at, that the Mason-Dixon line uh, oh, part yeah. of you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Things slow down a bit for me, um, but you know, someone really frustrated 
told me that their father, I won't tell you the nationality, but said that it was a, just from the culture that they come from. It's like putting up the middle finger, like you're nothing to me. Hmm. You, you, you think nothing of, of my time. What you're saying is that you are, you are disrespectful of who I am and what I do and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas other cultures, their relationship is one in which things are connected. We're polychromatic, we're not monochromatic or linear. Things are happening all at once. So, I mean, that's another reason like, um, that, that travel is so interesting because among the many cultural differences, that, mm. that relationship to time is part of it. And actually, I'm reaching in my pocket to look for my phone to <laughs> so tell you me the because time I'm, I'm meeting a British friend yeah, I'm gonna have to go. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, because my British friend, who actually appeared in episode three of the Deviate podcast, he writes oh. um, he writes music for movies. Rolf Kent. Um, and the I'm other sure, Rolf. The other Rolf. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm sure his take on time. In fact, not on the mic. I'm gonna go. Talk, I'm gonna ask him some of these same questions because he has. He uses music to underscore emotion mm -hmm. and to speed up or slow down time. That he has an artistic relationship that's very specific about how he he can alter time. Mm -hmm. uh, so when, when I'm in the theater, or when I'm watching Days and Confused on my phone, or you're watching Bergman, there's the music in that is also part of the calibrated to, yeah. to draw you into deep time. So yeah. Uh, so in respect of my uh, dinner <laughs> date own, with Rolf hey, Kent. I'll just sit here and talk into the mic. <laughs> there you we can, go. <laughs> that would be a, a fun podcast where I just send Major out to just like narrate a day. It's like the, uh, it's Deviate with Rolf Potts minus Rolf Potts. Uh, right. <laughs> this has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviatrolfpots.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm -hmm.